Good afternoon, friends. My name is Michael, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. If you're visiting, it's so great to have you today. We're going to be in the book of Titus today. I want you to think back with me to a time before coronavirus. Even further, actually, a time before there was any sickness, no suffering. Can you go back that far in your mind? This was even a time when there was no death. Now, if you're a Christian, you probably know the time that I'm talking about. That time before the fall when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in perfect communion with him. If you think back to that time, though, there was still one threat. There was one danger in the garden. And it's the fact that before sin even entered the world, there was false teaching. There was false teaching. If you think about the garden and that picture, Adam and Eve walking with God, in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that there was also a false teacher in the garden, a serpent named Satan. And through his lies, through his false teaching, and through Adam and Eve's sin, death entered the world and suffering and sickness, the curse of sin that we all feel every single day day. And sadly, if you know the story of the Old Testament, false teaching remained a threat to God's people. Throughout God's people, there were false prophets with a rose. Oftentimes, there were less people who were actually following God, and there were more people who were falling away from God. And sadly, the leaders were not exempt from this, from prophets to priests. They taught the opposite of what God taught. God spoke the truth to his people to guide them and protect them and lead them. False prophets came along and led people astray into idolatry. And you might think with the coming of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, the fact that Christians, the amazing truth is that we actually have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, that false teaching would just not be a problem anymore. I wonder today if, if you think about the problems or the threats or the dangers in your life, if you're a parent, the threats that face your kids, surely you think of sickness. Most of you, all of you except me, are wearing a mask, right, because of coronavirus. Uh, you definitely think of suffering. You want your children, if you're a parent, to be financially secure in the future. You want to teach them how to do that. What about the danger of false teaching? How much do you think about that? How much do you perceive that as a threat to your life or your family or your friends? Last uh, sermon that was in Titus was just a few weeks ago, and Pastor Mark was preaching. He titled the sermon, Trustworthy Teachers. And um, that was all about the qualifications of an elder. Mark, our brother, I think is a trustworthy teacher. He modeled well what it means. Uh, for elders, what we should look for in the church. The sermon today I've titled Terrible Teachers. And I hope I'm not a terrible teacher. I hope I am a trustworthy teacher. But the question I have for you as we consider First uh, uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 is, how can you tell a trustworthy teacher from a terrible teacher? How do you know the difference? When you think of a terrible teacher, what do you think of? Maybe you think, well, to be a trustworthy teacher, you need to be charismatic 
and engaging. You really need to capture people's attention and keep them listening. A terrible teacher obviously is one where people find it boring. You know, they fall asleep during the sermon. Perhaps you think a trustworthy teacher is one um, that isn't too deep, and yet they're not too shallow either. They kind of have it just right in terms of doctrine. And a terrible teacher is one maybe that's just not funny enough, you know. Today, teachers need to be like comedians. Maybe you think of a trustworthy teacher as a life coach, somebody to kind of come alongside you, put their arm along you and encourage you and say, hey, you can really do this. Maybe a terrible teacher is one that kind of tells you some things, some truths that you don't really want to hear. You know, you don't, sometimes in the sermons, you hear them speak and you go, ooh, I didn't really like that. I wish you wouldn't have gone there. What's interesting is in Titus, we actually get the answer to this question. And the answer really goes back 2,000 years ago to an event that happened we call the good news of the gospel that so changed history that every teaching of God's word since then has to be viewed in light of that moment. And that is when Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. If you're here, you're a sinner. This is good news for you because though you were created in God's image and in his likeness, like we mentioned earlier in Genesis 3, Satan slithered in. He deceived your first parents, Adam and Eve. And through their sin and through your own sin, you're now held in judgment to God himself, the creator of the universe. We learn even that false teaching is not our greatest problem in the gospel. Our greatest problem in the gospel is that God's wrath stands against us because we've sinned against him. And so as we think about teaching and we think about what's trustworthy and what is terrible, we really have to think about the difference is really the extent in which a teacher's life reflects God's life and the extent in which a teacher is telling you the truth about God. You could summarize those two things as a teacher's life, their character, and a teacher's doctrine, what they're teaching. And if you look at Titus 1, 10 through 16, the reason I've titled this Terrible Teachers is because this little section of six verses is all about false teaching. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read it out loud for us. Titus 1, 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
Friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we praise you for giving us your trustworthy word. We praise you that you're the God who never lies. Your promises can always be trusted. But even as we consider this text, Lord, we confess that we are unlike you. We lie even when we don't want to. We shade the truth. And we love lies even when they hurt us. Especially in this moment, right now as we open your word, we need you to remind us of your truth. And we ask that you change us to bring about godliness in our lives because of it. Help us see the beauty of a rightly ordered church that is under the authority of Jesus Christ. One that protects your people and preserves the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned earlier, last time in Titus, we were looking at the qualifications of an elder. And today, if you look at that first word of our text, for, that little word, that three-letter word, tells us the reason that we need elders in the church. Titus 1, 5 through 9 was all about faithful teachers. Titus 1, 10 through 16, all about false teachers. Now this text is full of descriptions of false teachers. If we pulled Paul aside and said, Paul, tell us, tell us what you really think about false teachers. What would Paul say to us? He would say, well, they're insubordinate, number one. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. They're liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy, gluttons, defiled, detestable, disobedient. And there's more. They're unfit for any good work. And you might be thinking, wow, Paul, that is a lot. Do you really think all that? What should we do about false teachers then? And the bullseye of this text that we're looking at is really verse 13. Here's what Paul says to do. Look there. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, or some translations say severely. And so the main point of this passage is simple. It's that faithful teachers rebuke false teachers. Faithful teachers rebuke false teachers. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, that verb, rebuke, that's pretty strong. And even Paul here makes it even stronger than we might think. He says, do it sharply, do it severely. You might be thinking, is that really the necessary course of action? Why can't we say uh, faithful teachers pray for false teachers? That might be maybe a little better. Or uh, faithful teachers, just you keep doing your thing and ignore false teachers. Don't worry about what's going on out there. Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. And really, I think this text is why he doesn't say that. Um, I'm going to give you six reasons why rebuke is the necessary word that Paul chooses here in this text for false teachers. And listen, I was talking to the interns earlier, and they said six points in a sermon. The congregation, they can't handle that. But you know what? I believe in you guys, and I think you can do it. So six points, they're going to be quick. The first one is in verse 10. Their character is compromised. Look at verse 10. Tons of connections with the previous passage. Paul told Titus, appoint elders in every town. That's in verse 5. But in verse 10, Paul tells him there's many false teachers, many of them. He says their character's compromised. Look at that first thing he mentions, insubordination. They're insubordinate. 
Now, if you remember back to the elders, Paul actually said, an elder cannot be even open to the charge of insubordination. And yet that's the first thing he lists here to mark these false teachers. Insubordination means they won't submit. There's leaders that God's placed over the church. Those are the elders, as we heard last time. And these false teachers won't submit to them, it's possible. Certainly it means they won't submit to God's word. They won't submit to God himself. Paul also adds that these uh, false teachers are empty talkers and deceivers. They teach, but their teaching is void of any value. It's dangerously deceptive. And Paul identifies this group. He says, these are those of the circumcision party. Now, all Paul means there is that these are Jewish people. There's Jews that are um, leading these movements of teaching, and we see that throughout the text. If you notice later, it'll talk about Jewish, Jewish myths. It'll talk later about being pure and defiled. So think about what we've learned about the character of these false teachers. If you're recruiting, um, maybe you're a recruiter at your workplace. You're combing through resumes. You see one that says, hard worker, you know, um, honest. And then later at the bottom, you see it says, um, insubordinate, deceitful, void of any value. You're looking at that application thinking, yeah, I don't think I'm going to hire that person. I'm going to let that one slide, right? If we think about someone we'd hire in our workplaces, why would we pay pastors or listen to preachers who are marked by these qualities? It doesn't make any sense. None of us would ever do it knowingly. And I think one thing we learn from this as we think about character and the fact that the previous passage was primarily about an elder having godly character, right? We see here that we really need to know the character of those people who are teaching us God's word. We need to see them up close. What's their family life like? Do the elders, are they marked by insubordination with one another? Or do the elders submit to one another? When you hear them teach, is it full of sound doctrine, which is that phrase that's repeated so much through the book of Titus? Or is it things that you could probably watch and hear from non-Christians even? Is their teaching deep and devoted to the scriptures? Or do you kind of feel like they twist the truth? The plain value of the text is not what you hear in the sermons. It's always just a little off. And friends, if you're not a Christian... You've probably heard lots and lots of bad teaching. Maybe you've even heard crooked pastors. And when you think of Christianity, you think of all those men who their lives just did not match what you thought you saw in the Bible. And maybe that's a reason that you've said, you know what, Christianity is full of hypocrites. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. But you should actually be encouraged in this text because Paul's actually saying, guess what? There are lots and lots. He uses the word many, false teachers. So let me encourage you, reconsider Christianity if that's been your experience. Look at the text. What does the scripture say? And find a good church where you actually admire the people that you're around who say they're Christians because their lives are full of godliness and goodness. Now, if we look at the next thing, the second reason that Paul says that rebuke is the necessary word, it's in verse 11. It's that their teaching is toxic. So not only is their character, kind of their inward life, compromised, he says even their teaching is toxic. And look at verse 11. 
They're upsetting whole families. So we see there the effect of their teaching. You know, what's the fruit of the teaching of the church that you're at? Are the people actually more godly if, if you're a Christian and you're a member of this church? Through the preaching of God's word week after week, do you sense that you're actually growing to know Jesus Christ more and more? That's not what was happening in Crete. Instead, whole families uh, were being affected. It's possible that this is referring to local churches since families, um, households were often the places where churches met. Either way, we know that the effect is negative. They're being upset. They're being ruined, you could say. We also see here their motives in their teaching, right? And we're, we see the connection between character and content. Their motives, Paul says in verse 11, is that they're teaching for shameful gain. Now again, earlier in the qualifications to be an elder, Paul said that they cannot be greedy for gain. But these teachers are teaching so that they can fill their pockets with profits of unsuspecting church members. What does Paul say to do? He says they must be silenced. And here we can often think about the teaching of Jesus also, right? Jesus hated the false teaching of the Pharisees. He confronted it when he heard it. He especially hated it when it preyed on innocent and the weak, the vulnerable. That's when it drove him crazy and he would rebuke them. He would cast woes on the Pharisees. And so Paul's just doing the same thing. You know, almost every week I get an email from Emirates MBD which is the company I use for our debit card. And it, the title of the email says, Stay Vigilant. That's what it says. You can probably guess. It's an email about scammers, fraudsters, people who are going to call you and say, hey, this is the police. We need your bank details. And to be honest, I usually just delete these emails. I don't read them. Um, and maybe that's my own pride. I don't think I'm susceptible to these scammers. Um, but, you know, it's not happened so far. And so I just don't think about it that much. In my mind, you know, those scammers and the fraudsters who are trying to take your bank details, they're just not that big of a deal to me. Um, but I have a friend. His mom um, got a phone call one day. She was told, hey, you've won a prize. And, you know, she's older in, in um, her walk, and she's, she believed it. You know, she gave, sent her bank details. By the time my friend found out, his mother had lost tens of thousands of dollars to this scammer. And so he felt, you know, he probably would read one of those emails a little differently than I would. But we have to remember, and maybe when you hear false teaching, you just think, who actually believes that stuff? You know, you don't think that you're susceptible to it. But what about the effect on other people? And we learn from Paul that Christians should not just care for their own spiritual lives, they should also care for the spiritual lives of other Christians. That's, in fact, the reason Paul is addressing the church and Titus with this letter, because he cares that false teachers are disrupting the faith of other Christians. We also see that we should care about other churches. You know, Maybe your idea of Christianity is, well, if it's not happening in my church, I won't say anything. But even as we prayed for in the pastoral prayer, we care about the teaching that's happening at Fellowship Dubai. And we're so thankful. You know, there's a new pastor coming on staff there. 
Um, the old pastor is retiring, and he's going to continue preaching the same gospel. Praise the Lord. That's good news. We pray for the teaching at UCCD. We pray for the teaching at Redeemer. And even in places far away, because we know that sound doctrine produces healthy churches, and the flip side is true also. Unfaithful teaching, false teachers, it wreaks havoc. If you look at the third reason, you'll see this in verses 12 and 13. It's that their reputation is repulsive. So not just their teaching was toxic, look at their reputation. And and to prove this, Paul, interestingly enough, he quotes this Cretan prophet. Look at verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And anytime I read this, I always love Paul's kind of one-sentence commentary on this Cretan prophet who wasn't a Christian. He says, this testimony is true. You know, it's like, that is totally, it seems, like an overgeneralization. Some of you might read that and think, that seems racist for Paul to agree to that. Here's what he's saying here, though. He's saying, yes, sin affects the whole human race, but sin also looks different in every single place, right? So even the Cretans, among themselves, these kind of three things, there were tons of kind of proverbs and stuff that said, hey, Cretans, that's kind of synonymous with liar. We're all liars. Even the Cretans would say that. It's ironic because on that little island of Crete, there were no large beastly animals, right? So even here we see that the Cretan prophet is saying, hey, there's not beasts on the animal, but look, hey, that's us, right? We're the evil beasts. And they were known for their laziness. So Paul's not racist. He's referring to the fact that these false teachers live up to the reputation of non-Christians and what they think of them. You know, um, right at the start of COVID, this really made me think of um, one non-Christian podcaster that I don't listen to him often, but what had happened was there was a celebrity pastor in New York City right at the beginning of COVID who was caught in adultery. And so this non-Christian podcaster, he came on and like many Christians, you know, people were pointing the finger and saying, hey, we knew this was going to happen. This guy isn't any good. But this guy actually said, hey, multiple times on my podcast, I've been saying, you know, you got to watch out for this guy. And finally, it's come out that, you know, I was right. And this is from a non-Christian. And the thing that he said really struck me was he said, you know, I saw what this guy was doing. I knew he was pretending. He was pretending to be profound. He was pretending to be pious or religious. But really, he wasn't above it all. Really, this is what the non-Christian said, he was just one of us. And you know, as we think about that, in many ways, that's what's happening here. The Cretans are saying, you know, we're liars, we're evil beasts, we're lazy gluttons. And sadly, that was just the same with these false teachers. They were just like the non-Christians around them. And I wonder if you listen to any preachers on the internet. You know, do you know their reputation among non-Christians? Because it's one thing for a pastor to be critiqued for his godliness or his biblical worldview or the standards that he has um, and that he teaches that are in line with Scripture. That's one thing. And and when we hear that, we should just go, good, we should be critiqued for those things. Let non-Christians be offended by our holiness and our Christ-likeness. 
But it's quite another thing when non-Christians are critiquing a pastor or a teacher for their character, for their reputation. And when they do that, perhaps we really need to listen, especially then. The fourth reason, and we're going to look at verse 14 here, is that these false teachers are devoted to deception. They're devoted to deception. So Paul says in um, chapter 1, verse 9, that they're supposed to be holding firm, elders, to the trustworthy word as taught. Here we see the false teachers are devoted to myths. Instead of teaching what's been entrusted to them by the command of Jesus Christ, right? And if you look back, that's verse 3. That's what Paul was saying, what happened to him. Instead of doing that, they're devoted to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And I think it's important that Paul doesn't specify what the myths are. He doesn't specify what the commands are. The point is, the teachings turn from the truth. Maybe even reading that, you thought, huh, I wonder what those myths were. What were they so curious about? And perhaps that's a warning for yourself. You know, these people were so interested in lies, in myths, in commands of men, they weren't interested in what the scriptures had to say. They fed on a steady diet of deceit, and it shaped their teaching. You know, uh, about five years ago, we landed in Dubai. Uh, we had just moved from a place called Fayetteville, Arkansas. And at that time, actually, many of my wife and I's friends had moved overseas for the sake of the gospel. Um, the sad thing, though, is many of those friends have left the mission field for various reasons. And even worse is that some of them have left the faith. So just five years ago, we left for the sake of the name. We were preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ. We were kind of all in it together. And then five years, we look back and uh, many of those friends aren't following Jesus anymore. And I think it's important to note that it happened so subtly. You know, nobody wakes up one morning and just says, I'm not going to be a Christian today. It's just a slow drift. I remember one of those friends, you know, I'm on this social media app called Goodreads. And it's all about reading, you know, you post your books and stuff, what you like, and you rate them. And I saw on that app that she had been reading this book that I thought was really unhelpful, written by a non-Christian about the Bible. It was kind of his view on the Bible. And so just in conversation, I was talking to somebody that was over in that city with her. And I said, hey, I noticed, um, you know, she's reading that book. And they said, yeah, yeah, she's actually reading that because she wants to be able to refute her the, her uh, faith, you know, guard her faith against this false teaching that's out there. She wants to better understand those arguments so that she can defend her Christianity. I thought, okay, that's commendable, you know, and there is a sense in which some people, you need to know what the myths are if you're going to refute them. But then slowly over, over the months, I saw that her reading list, you know, the books that she was reading became more and more kind of only those types of books. So what started as just a curiosity hey, I just want to see what's out there and be able to defend my faith, soon turned into something she was consumed with. And it wasn't too many months later that she said, I, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. She left the field. The worst part about it all is that she actually influenced more than a few of our friends in the same direction. And you can see how that subtleness, you know, that devotion to Jewish myths, or the commands of people who turn away from the truth. First, it just is a little bit, and then it's a lot, and then soon enough, 
lots of people are affected by it. And I think here for us, the thing we need to take away is we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we interested in? What, what are we devoted to? What are the things that we think about? You know, um, every Christian I know seeks to have a daily quiet time, you know, trying to read the Bible every day. But if we're honest, many of us, you know, sometimes that doesn't even happen. And if we're even more honest, a lot, lots of us spend so much time on social media or looking at the news or watching Netflix. And those things happen subtly, right? None of us would say, you know, I love God's word, but I love watching Netflix more than that. So that's what I'm going to do today. Nobody says those things, right? And, and nobody says, you know, I love spending time with church members, um, but even more, I like going to the bar and hanging out there. It's just subtle changes, right, over time. And if, as we think about that scripture that was read earlier, Psalm 19, which has a beautiful reflection on uh, the psalmist's love for God's word, that'd be a great place to go with a friend and just say, hey, is this your experience as you read the Bible? And there's a few lines I want to point out from there. One is the psalmist says that it's more to be desired than gold, you know, the psalmist loves God's word more than finances, even. He says it's sweeter also than honey. And I wonder today if that's your posture towards God's word. Because what you concentrate on is probably what you cherish. What you think about is probably what you treasure. The last um, two of these are found in verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, he mentions their consciences, their consciences. Their consciences are corrupt. And there's this debate about purity and defilement here, and I'm not going to spend much time on that. There's lots of different opinions on if it's referring to Jewish rules for purity or if it's referring to the fact that Jesus teaches that it's what is inside of us that defiles us and it comes out. Either way, you can see his point is clear. It's that there's a difference between purity and defilement and that he kind of lumps together defilement and unbelieving. And then he's clearly saying here that the false teachers are defiled, right? And what's defiled about them? It's their consciences and their minds. Now, you might be thinking, how do you see that? You know, if somebody has a defiled mind or a defiled conscience, how do you actually recognize that? And it's important to note that the next verse really shows you that fruit from their minds, from their consciences, is displayed in their works. And that's really the last reason that Paul says that we need to rebuke false teachers. It's because their profession of faith is fake. That's verse 16. Their profession of faith is fake. So he's moved from that inward, their mind, their consciences, to outward their profession is, look at verse 16, they know God. That's what they say with their lips. But, Paul notes, they deny him. How do they deny him? Not with their words. They don't say, I know God. No, I really don't. They say, I know God, but if you watch their life, what would you see? You would see that they say, I don't know God. So, this is the power of self-deception right here. And it's important that Jesus gives us kind of a picture to think about false teachers. And the picture he gives us is that of a wolf 
who's in sheep's clothing. A wolf who's in sheep's clothing. Now, I've never been a shepherd of actual sheep, um, so I'm not quite sure how terrifying it would be. I can assume it'd be very terrifying if you're, you know, you got your little flock there and you're protecting them and you're feeding them, and then you see a wolf coming, right? You'd probably grab your shepherd's stick and you'd be ready to fight. Um, how even more terrifying, if we think about Jesus' picture, if that wolf is kind of dressed up in a costume. The costume is that of a sheep. So you're looking in the distance and you're thinking, that looks like a sheep. I, I think it's a sheep. But as it gets closer, you kind of see that the teeth are a little sharp, right? And it's got a pointy nose. And soon enough, it's close enough and it's a wolf. What do you do at that point? Let's combine Jesus' metaphor, that picture, with Paul's warning. So the wolf might even say to you, it might speak, hey, no, it's cool. I'm a sheep. I'm one of you. I follow God. I'm a Christian, right? What do you do? Should we just take wolves at their word? If somebody says, hey, I'm a Christian, should we just say, hey, you need to give them the benefit of the doubt. They said it. That's all that matters. I think Paul would say the loving thing to do is examine them. They said they're a Christian, right? What did their work say? Let's see for ourselves. And of course, as pastors, the loving thing to do is to call out wolves, not to just say, hey, let them play with the sheep. It'll all be fine. Or the sheep can kind of fend for themselves. I've seen way too many videos on YouTube to know that sheep are pretty dumb, right? And that's the picture that the Bible presents of us. We're in need of shepherding. We also see here that true faith, it produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when somebody is actually a Christian, Paul wants us to see here, and it's actually throughout the whole letter, that their godliness will be evident based on the truth they say, and the truth that they believe will produce more and more godliness or good works. Instead, the picture of the false teachers is one of detest. He says they're disobedient, they're unfit for any good work. Now, I know lots of ministries that um, are around today. Uh, they're called discernment ministries, and their kind of whole job is to call out false teachers. I'm certainly not against that. I think there's an appropriate way that that can be done. But it seems like Titus, the book of Titus, presents the people who are supposed to do that primarily as elders. And not just elders anywhere, but the elders of your local church. Because at the end of the day, Hebrews 13 teaches us that those are the men who will have to give an account for your soul to Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, I don't think any of the elders here have, have ever had to publicly say, hey, look out for, you know, fill in the blank name. They are a false teacher. That's not happened yet. But if we know anything from church history, we know that false teaching will be with us until Jesus Christ returns. So it may happen. It probably will happen at some point in our time. And let me just encourage you. If you're thinking, this sounds pretty harsh, you know, why would you do this? Just look back on the characteristics of these false teachers. Look at their effect on Christians. False teaching, friends, is dangerous. And before I conclude, I just want to reflect a little bit on why we're in the danger of false teaching. Why are we in the danger of false teaching? 
I think one reason is ignorance. You know, this is true of pastors. It's true of church members. I, as a pastor, can only teach you what I know the scriptures to say. You know, I can only take you to where I've been personally, right? And we see this in the Old Testament. You think about King Josiah. He's 18 years old. He's become king. And one of his priests that was serving at the time finds the book of the law. It was lost. Can you believe it? God's word, they just lost it. And when they find it, King Josiah leads a reformation. You know, but when the law was lost, what did the people do? They didn't just kind of stick in neutral. They actually turned to idolatry. It was only when Josiah heard the law spoken that he humbled himself and his heart was tender, the Lord said, to obey. You know, but sadly, Josiah is just one of the rare occurrences of this. Think about how dangerous ignorance is when you just don't know something. If you're at the edge of a cliff, and it's a little foggy, you're probably not going to see that edge very well. You're in danger. Think back to the Garden of Eden. What happened when that false teacher, the serpent, tempted Eve? It was really kind of her ignorance. She misquoted the scripture, the, the word, the command that God had gave them, back to the serpent, and then she fell into sin. So the positive example to us of ignorance that the church needs to embody is that we see in Acts 17, and that's the Bereans. There were these um, believers, they followed God, but when they heard the word preached, what did they do? They went back and examined the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. So friends, let me encourage you. I've been preaching for about 30 minutes so far, and your job is to examine the scriptures. Look at Titus 10 through 16 and think, is what he's saying up there what the scriptures say? This is the final authority, not me. Now, that's one problem with false teaching. The other, though, is, is more dangerous, I think, and that's the danger of idolatry. So throughout the Bible, God's people move beyond ignorance and into idolatry. In many ways, that's the story of the Old Testament. So think back to that Old Testament reading. Even it's in your bulletin, Jeremiah chapter 5. It's a sobering reminder of the depravity of God's people. Look at verse 30 and 31. He says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. So we know the prophets were called to preach, to speak on behalf of God. Here they're only speaking lies. The priests, they're called to rule in the fear of God. And yet they rule as if God doesn't even exist. But the worst part is the last part of that verse. Verse 31. My people love to have it so. So the prophets were to blame, certainly. The priests were at fault. That's true. But the people are guilty. The people are guilty too. They loved it. In 1 Timothy, Paul warns um, Timothy, he says, hey, preach the word because a time is coming when people won't want to hear it anymore. They will want to have their ears that are itching, scratched by false teaching. They'll want preaching that pleases them, that never rebukes them. One author wrote, we're amusing ourselves to death. That's what we want. Just entertain us. Make us laugh. 
And so, friends, I hope you've seen that little word, rebuke, faithful teachers rebuke false teachers, is very appropriate. Because until we die or until Jesus comes back, false teaching will be a threat to the church. But there is hope. So you may be thinking, man, this is an intense sermon. It's a bit of doom and gloom. There's over 13 negative characteristics of false teaching. There's kind of one primary command, rebuke them sharply. But even in this passage, there's hope. In verse 11, notice the silencing of false teachers is for the salvation of others. Ideas have consequences. Lies are life-threatening. So friend, if you're a Christian, if you say you love Jesus, there will be a time in your life where you will have to rebuke somebody else for their false teaching. And that, my friend, is going to be the most Christ-exalting, loving thing that you can do. And in verse 13, notice the purpose here. And this is beautiful. The purpose of rebuke is for restoration. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And this is amazing. This is the good news of the gospel. As we think about earlier, that gospel message that's supposed to transform all teaching through all time, the gospel says that liars and lazy gluttons can actually be saved by Jesus Christ. There's hope for them. The gospel says that even the detestable, the disobedient, the defiled, can be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The gospel says that wolves, even wolves, can become sheep, but only if they repent of their sins, only if they repent of their false teaching. Friend, if you're here, if you're not a Christian, you too have bought into a lie. You've bought into false teaching. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but your life, the life that you're living, was supposed to be for God's purposes and God's glory. You've chosen another way, and it's really the way of the serpent from Genesis 3, the way of sin and death. So let me encourage you, let me implore you, please, friend, reconsider your life in light of the truth of the gospel and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And even you can have that faith that's talked about in this passage. We rebuke for restoration because we really do believe as Christians the gospel is worth living for, it's worth fighting for, it's even worth dying for. Friends, let's close in prayer. God, we thank you that you are the God of truth, that every word you speak can be trusted, that you always speak the truth and never lies. And we thank you that you've extended this truth to us. It transforms our lives. It promises us hope for that day when Jesus Christ will return. And until then, Lord, you've called us as a church to steward and protect this truth of the gospel. So help us have courage to rebuke when necessary for the sake of the salvation of others. Lord, we pray that you preserve this church from false teaching. Help us be a mark of faithfulness. Help us encourage other churches in their faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Friends, please stand. Let's sing our last.